0: Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Tilting at Windmills. I am your host, Mike Donahue. And tonight we have a pretty timely uh, segment on Brexit. And it makes my head hurt, um, but I wanted to know more about it. So I've engaged uh, Neil Garrett, um, an Englishman, through and through to try and help me out. And then afterwards, uh, I'll have a few thoughts about it and update you with the news of today, which is March 12th. Enjoy. All right. uh, We are back, and I am super excited for my first repeat guest, um, the Right Honorable Neil Garrett of
1: uh, (laughs) Ingerland. Neil, how are you this evening? Hi, Mike. I'm very well. I think you've just promoted me somewhat there, but uh, it's nice to be back on the show.
0: I just thought every Englishman was right, honorable. Oh, that's true. Yes. Okay. So it works. <laughs> uh, welcome back. I th- uh, today we're going to have you on um, to talk about Brexit, but there is a super um, pressing sort of question. I think that was we left hanging in, in the last interview. And I know it has tormented you. And that was <laughs> understanding why Lester is spelled. <laughs> <laughs> like like an illiterate of, wrote it down, yeah, a, a lovecraft novel, um yeah, what, what uh and and I know, I know it bothered you so much, you instantly went to Oxford uh to research it and and why <laughs> why is Lester lester
1: so uh, so for those of you uh who don't remember so I was born in Leicester, grew up in Leicestershire, and Leicester is one of quite a large number of places all across England, not in Scotland or Wales. Um, that end in Cester or caster or chester. Uh, and th- that suffix always means the same thing. Uh, and it means it was a Roman garrison, a Roman fort. Uh, when the Romans invaded in about 52 AD, so getting on for 2,000 years ago, Romans came along and they established a whole series of forts right across England as they invaded and subsumed uh, England into their empire. And so all of those places, Manchester... Leicester, Doncaster, Bicester, all of those places all that, you, that you see on the map all over England, that is what that name means. And so the reason why it has a weird spelling and it doesn't seem very congruous with modern English is that the people who were living there at the time were not, England didn't exist as a place and they weren't speaking English as a language. The Romans came in, they were speaking Latin, they weren't English. Uh, they were here for about 500 years, eventually they left. Uh, then there's about another 500 years of history where we were the sort of Anglo-Saxon period, which I think is this period of seven kingdoms that like Westeros in Game of Thrones is modelled on. Uh, right. And but they weren't speaking English. They were speaking Anglo-Saxon, which in theory is an early form of English. But if you go online and Google some Anglo-Saxon and try and read it, you'll have some trouble. And so really something resembling English didn't exist for about a thousand years after the place called Leicester was put on the map and called Leicester. So that's the reason why the spelling is weird by the standards of modern English, and most of those places, like Vista, B-I-C-E-S-T-E-R, B-I-C-E-S-T-E-R uh, all of those places, some of them have got quite phonetic spellings, like Manchester, but lots of them are just weird because they've been around for so long. It's just kind of evolved in some strange direction. So I, I, I'm sure there was an answer in there somewhere, but I missed it.
0: Are you saying it's because that's what the Romans originally called it?
1: So there probably would have been a place called something like Lys or Lys or something like that. Uh, and then they just stuck this casta, which is the Latin word for castle or fort. Oh, oh. They stuck that on the end. So so yeah, so when the Romans came in, when my people were subjugated by the imperialist warlords that invaded this wonderful land, uh, and they built all these, all these garrisons all over the place to uh, subjugate the population. They built all these forts and uh, garrison towns, and they okay. uh, they just put the word castor or chester or cester. As, uh, it, originally, it would have been castor, but they, it, it sort of morphed over the 2,000 years in between. So whenever hmm. you see that on a map, any of you visiting England, whenever you see anything that ends in any of those suffixes, it means that it was there was originally a place there, and then they added castor, the Romans, when they uh, built a fort. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to
0: think of uh, a modern equivalent, but I, I can't. So we have our
1: answer. I can now Well, Fort Lauderdale. You. I mean, there's. A, I assume oh. there's a fort there. Or all those places in America with fort in the name. Were they right. forts? They were forts. Uh, yeah, fort Dearborn. Uh, fort
0: Knox? I don't know. Uh, yeah, mm. the, but there are cities that have that, that have a fort. But we didn't. I don't know that we stole someone else's name or appended someone else's name, but anyway, whatever. Mm. It's, it's an, I, it, it is what it is. So there, there you go. Uh, but but yeah. Nice. So we have you on today, uh, to talk about a word that's, uh, much more spellable, uh, yeah. in, in Brexit, uh, which yeah. is a conjugation of, uh, Britain and exit super snappy Um, because if it was just england because englex (laughs) Anglic, or scotland scott x scott
1: yeah i have to say i'm not a fan of these these kind of fake portmanteau words whether it's hollywood couples or political movements and i've been it works well well, I did vow that I would never use the word, and then I realized that it just it was a losing battle, so I gave up about a year ago.
0: It could be worse um we now because we had Watergate in the seventies with Richard Nixon, any sort of yeah. scandal at any level now rises to gate levels.
1: Do you uh, know what we have the same thing the stunning- origin- unoriginality is that we have all of these something gates as well, and we didn't even have Watergate. <laughs> that was just the thing we read about in the newspaper with Richard Nixon. Right. Like in 1974 or something, was it?
0: Yeah. It's, uh, language is a funny thing, they say, even if I am not. Um, so let's, let's talk about Brexit. So the first, the yep. first, um, I think the foundational thing is that you guys have something called the EU, right? Yep. Which it's is the European Union, right? Which is, I don't know, a bunch of euros getting together and it's like, it's like a wannabe NAFTA, but, the sort of nafta on steroids. So we have a we have a trade zone between Canada, yep. and Mexico, uh United States where we allow free trade. You guys do that within this the European Union countries, but you also go beyond that,
1: right? You you, you free travel, yes. consolidated laws, etc. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point and I think it's important. See, there is a thing called the European Free Trade Association which is much more like nafta and right. that's not the European Union. It's a separate thing. And I think this is where a lot of the confusion, I mean, in Britain and I suspect around the world creeps in because the European Union is not really about a free trade thing. It is about free trade, but that's not really what its aim is. The reason the word union, you know, there's, is a big clue that there's more than just about trade. And it's really about creating a political union. The kind of the, the, the motto, if you like, is ever closer union. That's enshrined in, in all of the treaties. And it's about creating a political union, a monetary union. So you have the currency, the same currency across most of the members of the EU. Uh It's about creating uh essentially one large country called Europe, kind of along the same lines as the United States. So it's not really about emulating NAFTA. It's more about emulating the USA. Uh, hmm. That's a slightly controversial statement. And certainly people in the UK who are in favor of remaining in the EU tend not to tend to feel that that's a bit overblown, but I really think it's it's hard to look closely at what the European Union does without coming to that conclusion. And the, so it has these four founding freedoms, basically, of the, the single market, which is free movement of people, free movement of goods, uh, free movement of services, and free movement of uh, capital. And okay. the idea is that you can then, so those are all not just about free trade. So you can have a free trade agreement, say, between USA and Mexico, but without having you know, right to move freely in the way that you could move from, say, California to New York and get a job. And there's no bureaucrat who's allowed to tell you that you can't do that. If you've got a job, you know, if you decide you want to go to New York, then off you go. Uh, the idea is to create that same kind of freedom that if uh I had a job in Germany, I could just go to Germany and there's no one who's allowed to tell me that I can't. You know, in contrast to, say, a Mexican who wants to come and work in the United States, you know, they have a, a battle to get uh, to uh convince somebody that they should be allowed and so it's it's really a much bigger thing i mean i'm trying to describe this in a very neutral way uh without saying whether this is a good thing or a bad thing but it's important to understand that what the eu the european union is trying to do is much more than just a free trade area it is trying to create something that is much more like a european counterweight to the usa i think the people who founded it very much saw it in those terms back in when you had the soviet union the united states they saw the idea that you would then have the European Union as a kind of third major block within the world.
0: Yeah. And I, so without going back to Roman times, <laughs> it has it has been burbling quite a bit. Right. It wasn't didn't this sort
1: of come start in the 70s. Yeah. And actually, what's interesting, you can still there's some really interesting speeches you can find from back in those days. And what's interesting then is it was the left. So the Labour Party, which is the main left wing party in the UK, That was the Eurosceptic Party. They were against going in and uh, in favour of coming out, having gone in. And it was the conservative party, the centre right party that uh, that took us in. In fact, it was Edward Heath who was a prime minister in uh, 1974 who took us into the European Union. Uh, And although we had a referendum, the referendum was after we went in. So we went in, I think, in 74 and then had a vote in 75 about whether that was the right thing to have done. But obviously the inertia was then always, <laughs> genuinely, the inertia was always staying in. And the reason why the politics of it then were that the conservatives saw an opportunity for free trading and uh, open markets across a bigger area and, and promoting business. And the left saw it as a kind of neoliberal uh, conspiracy to crush the man, you know, to crush the little guy by the big guy. So that was kind mm. of how they, how the left saw it then. Um, that during so, I suppose the late seventies and early eighties that totally reversed and gradually it became leaving the EU became a conservative party project and the left became much more in they saw Europe as a way of protecting workers' rights, protecting trade union rights and so on. So so let's so it, you, let's just
0: run through the pros and cons and real quick of yeah. the modern EU as a as from sort of an English perspective. So if I'm thinking about, you know, some of the pros, right? I can get in my car and I can drive to Greece, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about anything.
1: Well, you have to worry about some water, but other than that, you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> actually, well, okay, you can, actually just, just, there is a, there is a mainland bit of Greece. Actually, to be fair, but yeah, in, in theory, yeah, huh? you can just get. So last year, Keep I my went car. To, yeah, I went to I went to Paris to Disneyland, obviously, and yeah. I just got in the car, and off we, we had we had to book a ferry to get across the wet bit between England and France. But that you know, there's no legal aspect to that. There's, it's no more difficult than buying.
0: You know, it's, it's like of... a
1: traveling within England or exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. They're so getting the car. So, and then the go.
0: same thing if a, a job, right? So there's a job for an Englishman. Uh, you know, France wants to improve their culinary skills. So they, they put an ad in for English cooks. Um, I just go over, I apply and I get hired and I start getting paid. Yep.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yep. So that's, so that, that's a problem. Free... Yeah, that's so. Uh, the free free movement of people it, it covers exactly okay. that. If you if you, uh, if you wish to go there and work, then no one can stop you. Doesn't matter if I'm a citizen or not a citizen. There, you have to. If you're a citizen of any EU nation, then you can go to right. work in any other EU nation. And there's an interesting backdoor that that creates. Um, for example, uh, you and I both know someone who was born in Brazil, but who had joint Portuguese nationality. Since Portugal is a member of the EU, he was able to come and work in Britain because of his Portuguese nationality. Um, right. So that's, uh, you know, that's the way that the, the freedom operates. If you have nationality, if you're a citizen of any of the 28, stroke 27, if we leave, you can go and work in any of them. And the, the, one of the things that the EU pushes very hard is the idea that states, member states of the EU are not allowed to treat its own citizens differently from other citizens who work there. So for example, if there's an entitlement to welfare or some kind of benefits, everyone is entitled to it on the same basis.
0: Okay. That, I think that brings up a whole other conversation, um, that I don't want to get into. Um, the other, no, the well, other the, thing-
1: the, the point to understand there, though, is that they see themselves as, um, and in fact, particularly within Europe, a, fr- a friend of mine works in, in the government and he was, he was involved in these negotiations previously with uh, Germany and they were, he was speaking to a German colleague. And as far as his German colleagues, this is a, a civil servant, you know, government worker in Germany. As far as they were concerned, they didn't see movement between European countries as immigration. They saw it as just no different from, you know, a California moving to New York or, you know, a Londoner moving to Birmingham. It was just. But if, but if,
0: but if, if if Germany has really excellent welfare programs, what's to stop, um, all the poorers moving into Germany?
1: Nothing. And that's, this is, this is where it started to politically become more difficult because initially you had, the European Union was more Western Europe, where you had basically fairly similar nations. So there's no, you know, while individual people may have reasons to prefer to move to France or Germany, for example, or the Netherlands and the reasons why people might want to do that. What what there wasn't was a huge flow in one direction. Uh, whereas where it started to become politically more difficult was when you had much poorer nations in Eastern Europe. Uh, which joined and then gained the same freedom of movement. And then it became much more one way traffic because there's much more reasons for, say, a Polish person to want to go and work in Germany or France or Britain than for a Frenchman to go want to go and work in Poland. just because obviously the the economic inequalities are kind of so stark. And I think that was the beginning of where it started to become politically more difficult. Right
0: um so the and then the other component i think what you what you commented on was the money right so i don't i don't have to if i have euros yeah um there's there's one euro i don't have to worry about exchange rates i don't have to worry about this or that the price of an apple may fluctuate between france and germany but the the money that i'm you know the cash in my pocket is a euro and it's the same money yeah Yeah, it makes up for you. Exactly.
1: Like, exactly like if you earn money in, you know, California and then you drive across to New Mexico or Arizona, you can spend the same dollar. Yeah. Exactly the same. Okay. So let's talk about the bad parts. Um, and again, Mm.
0: I'll, I'll I'll try and give you my American. So one, one of the things that I hear is, is right. Is it, it all seems to work a little bit better if all the countries that are participating are more or less in the same socioeconomic strata um mm-hmm. and when you start um bootstrapping up other countries then it has a net uh sort of negative the water level sort of lowers um what, what, what it creates and others go down
1: well i mean it's a bit more complicated than that so for example the eu no. does do a great deal yeah the eu does do a great deal of investment into those poorer nations in the east and i think it is it is a big benefit that they see and it was certainly a reason why they wanted to to join um, and is probably uh on balance a pr- a pretty good idea both for the richer and the poorer nations in the eu so uh in the sense that the eu will take funds which are predominantly raised in the wealthier countries and spend them on uh, infrastructure investment for example in uh, more so in the poorer areas. They look at it, the EU looks at the map by region rather than by country, which makes it slightly complicated because you can then end up with poorer regions within richer countries that are sort of disproportionately benefiting. Um, but but on the whole, there's a kind of redistributive effort there that's tended to produce uh, infrastructure spending in areas that needed it more, which I think is a positive. Where it gets difficult, for example, sticking with the example of Poland, the problem that then, so the problem that it creates in Britain is the usual problems of large influxes of people, which is you start to get a lot of resistance from people uh, from, from the people who perceive that their jobs are being taken or their wages are being undercut, uh, pressure on services and so on. Um, and again, I'm trying to describe it very neutrally rather than taking a side. But from a political point of view, if you've got a lot of people who are angry about it, it almost doesn't matter whether it's true or not. If they're angry about it, then you sort of have a problem to deal with one way or another but it also creates a problem at the other end in Poland which is that it sort of empties out disproportionately their working age population and leaves right. them with a lot of older people uh disabled people less capable people and god that sounds awful but do you know what i mean the the people who are the people who are less inclined to you know get on a train and move across a continent and find a job left behind and also children left behind and so actually one of it's this creates a problem for Poland who is then advertising for, to its own people in Polish elsewhere in the EU to go back home advertising you know the wonderful things they've left behind in Poland lots of sort of pulling at the heartstrings don't you want to go back to your native land kind of thing because it leaves them somewhat devoid of workers so it's not just it's it's very easy to see the immigration debate purely in terms of pandering to you know angry racist people in Britain or France, let's say, but it, it it genuinely is a complicated political problem where you have large movements of people from one place to another. At a certain level, it starts to become a problem at, at both ends. Okay,
0: so that's an issue. And then I think mm. um, there's a couple couple of cons left. I think um, number one, I think this was most apparent. I think when when uh, Greece was um, defaulting, is that that significant cultural differences in fiscal policy. Um, in, in, in terms of, you know, what does the government do? How do people pay taxes? Um, the concept of austerity, um, et cetera. If you have two really discordant countries like Germany and Greece that just think differently about these things,
1: it really doesn't end well. Right. No. And there's a, there's a. There, there is a problem. Well, there's a couple of problems it creates. So one problem was that you have a single currency. So if you take the U.S. dollar as an example, you've got one currency for the whole of the United States. Um, but you've got one government which is ultimately responsible for honoring that dollar. Across the EU, so the borrowing in dollars. So, so the the issue it creates is if a country borrows money, they borrow money in their own currency normally, unless they're in some weird you know, uh, basket case scenario. You know, the United States government borrows money in dollars. Since it has the ability to print dollars, it is in effect impossible for it to go bankrupt, except of course you, you know, you get into the kind of third world situation where you print too much money and you have hyperinflation. But as long as the government is fairly responsible, a government that controls its own currency can't go bankrupt and has a lot of latitude. The problem that you created in the with the eurozone, which is the part of the European Union that is in the euro currency, is that, for example, if you're Greece. You n- don't control your own currency. You can't print your own currency, but you are responsible for paying back your debts in it. Mm-hmm. And so the problem it creates is that it removes a relief valve in the form of that inflationary money printing process, uh, for governments to get themselves out of a hole. Uh, and, and that was the, and that's this cultural problem you're talking about where you have places, particularly like say Germany and the Netherlands that tend to be quite fiscally conservative small c conservatives so they want to keep their tax and their spending somewhat balanced against countries further south you know italy is another example that are much more um i mean it it does play on national stereotypes to some extent but it also actually is true in terms of how they run their government finances and the problem that it creates is it now becomes germany's problem if greece uh starts just spending very profligately which is sort of the problem they got into um so the greek 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 governments were spending profligately but then they couldn't print drachma which was their former currency they couldn't print drachma to get themselves you know to pay off their own debt so then they had to pay it back in this hard currency just like um you know you or i if we borrow money you have to pay it back in in hard currency you can't just go and print your own dollars and pay it back that's the problem is that that is that, is that one of the reasons why britain stayed on the pound was for that uh that's one of the yeah that is one of the problems the other problem is you can't set your own interest rate um I mean, I suppose the real reason, I mean, to be honest with you, is because just a large number of people, a sufficiently large number of people in Britain were very against it for a whole load of reasons. Most people are not. They didn't do the level level of economic analysis I've just given you. Most people just would go instinctively. We want the pound. We're keeping the pound. You can keep the euro. I think probably most people's analysis didn't get beyond that. And. Uh, there was enough political pressure within the UK kind of in the late nineties, early two thousands to make sure that Britain just stayed out when, when this was all, when it was all happening. I think Tony Blair, who was the prime minister at the time, was quite keen to go in. Um, but there were enough people, certainly the conservative party were very against it and there were enough people within the Labour party who were at least wary of it to make it, to make it politically mm. difficult so that it didn't happen. Uh, I it's mean, less- see, there's a, I was going to say okay. there's another factor as well in this though, which is that See, Germany gets a huge, see, what happens if you're a, if you're a country that exports, let's say you take Germany before the Euros, you're, you're making lots of luxury vehicles and other things that Germany makes, loads of high tech engineering. They make great cars. Goods.
0: Great yeah, exactly. cars.
1: Which they do loads, which of course they export enormously around the world. Lots of, I'm, I'm sure you look out your window, I'm sure there's a lot of German cars out of your window. Um, and, What happens is if you want to buy in very simple terms, if you're an American and you want to buy, let's say, a Mercedes, uh, Hmm. Mercedes, Mercedes is selling the car. Yeah. So Mercedes is selling the car in Deutschmark. So if you want to buy it, although it might not appear like this on the surface, in reality, you have to you have to spend your dollars to buy Deutschmark and then use the Deutschmark to buy the car. And so if you have a country that's exporting very strongly, that generates a lot of demand for their currency, which makes their currency quite expensive, which then kind of mitigates against their export because it makes their exports more expensive, if that makes sense. So as the Deutsche Mark rises against the dollar, that same Mercedes now costs like 3,000 more, 4,000 more. And at some point, I don't know, some other vehicle, I don't know what the competitor is, a Toyota maybe, uh, a Lexus, <laughs> starts to look uh, more competitive, which is obviously – Ultimately priced in yen. So, so, so this, as currencies float up and down, very strong exporting nations, their currency becomes stronger and then it becomes a kind of slight headwind for their exporting. Now, within the Eurozone, that's not happening. Germany is locked in to this fixed, uh, rates of exchange with all the other European nations. So it gives them a pretty big advantage in exporting because they're exporting all of this stuff. Let's Mercedes, for example. So now instead of buying deutschmark to buy that mercedes you're now buying euros to buy that mercedes but the euro is not rising with the german economy as much as the deutschmark would because it's also partly weighed down by the likes of other countries that are not those exporting powerhouses you know greece, right. greece. not so much greece because they're a very small economy but you know maybe uh, france or, or italy um, so it allows you as an American to keep buying that Mercedes at a lower price than it would have been if it was priced in Deutschmark, which gives Germany as a very efficient and very export driven economy, a huge advantage, uh, which they've enjoyed for the last 10, 15 years or so in, in the euro, which is another one. So so it's very easy to look at the eurozone debate and say, why should these hardworking working uh Frugal Germans bail out these feckless Greeks, but in actual fact, there is a my words a, exactly by the yeah, way. but there is a, but there is a big and very Sorry, hidden subsidy yeah, but there's this big hidden subsidy that that Germany is getting from being in the euro, and so right. part of the this whole bailout debate with with Greece was not so much bailing out the Greek people. This was where it was. It was I mean, I, I I found it quite appalling the way that it was done because it was in actual fact German banks more so that were being bailed out rather than Greek people. So German banks had lent money to the Greek government in euros, thinking that this was a zero-risk transaction because there's no currency risk. Suddenly, Greece looks like it's in trouble. The people who would really be in trouble were the German banks and French banks that had lent money to Greece. And the bailout that the European Central Bank forced Greece to take was primarily not a bailout of Greek people, but of French and German banks. Um, Right. And so, so, so there's... It's it's not an unmitigated good thing. Sorry, I've made it like fifty times more complicated. But these are no, it's okay. The it's just that we're we're so
0: we we've actually we're so far afield. We are we have actually <laughs> left the eurozone. Um, I just I just want to wrap it up very quickly because I think it is relevant. Is it also the EU laws? There is some subjugation of of or overlap of of the EU laws that are decided in Brussels or wherever the heck they yep. get together. Yeah. That, that all members of the EU have to abide by. So if they say, um, I don't know, bananas are illegal, you, England has to yeah,
1: obey yeah. that law. It, it, that's exactly right. So the supreme law here, so I'm sitting here in London, the supreme law in effect here is not, uh, English law or British law. It's, it is European law. That was the European Communities Act that was brought in in 1970, whenever it was. Um, and so the supreme law here is the European law and the supreme court is the European court, not, not the supreme court here in Britain. And it's, it's the same. It's, it's in pretty much analogous to a, to a state law. So if California makes a law that is directly contrary to a federal law, say if directly con- contrary to the constitution, uh, then ultimately the California law will be struck down and it's, it's, the details are a bit different, but the, the outcome is more or less the same. And so that's another. It becomes quite complicated, because what, not complicated, it becomes quite a fraught conversation to have, because what happens, people who are a fan of the EU say, okay, tell me then, tell me what EU law it is that you want to get rid of. What is it that they're doing that you're not happy with? But I think the thing that I'm not happy with, so I was someone who voted to leave, the thing that I think, uh, makes people unhappy with it is the fact, is twofold. Firstly, the fact that The process always goes in one direction. So the list of competencies that the EU covers only ever grows. It never shrinks. And within those competencies, the things they legislate on only ever grows. It never shrinks. Um, and I think the second aspect is the sense of being able to kick out the people who are making the decisions is quite absent. Um, so whatever you may think of Mr. Trump, there is at least a fairly clear mechanism to get rid of him in a couple of years time and have somebody else. Uh, and if you don't like the people in the EU who are making the laws, there's not really a mechanism to get rid of the people and change direction and have somebody else.
0: But there is, and it's called Brexit. So let's let's well, talk yeah. about Brexit. <laughs> so um a few years ago, I and I don't even know the but so I'll just give you my American perspective and then you sure. can correct me. Okay. Uh, you can tell me how I'm wrong, which is a never-ending joy for many people. <laughs> um so so basically a lot of people got their jimmies up about, I think I, maybe it started with the Germany Greece thing. Maybe it, it came about from whatever, maybe the EU laws, et cetera. But basically they were like, okay, we're done. Um We don't want to be a part of, and and like, we don't want to be a part of the EU anymore. And sort of like, you know, the Quebec independence or Scottish independence, there was this thing about, okay, look, there's enough people that are sort of bothered by it. We'll do some token vote We'll vote, people keep the status quo, and then we'll just we'll just keep going on. Yeah. Um and then we had there was that there was a vote called um and it was really one of the very first votes where we've really seen um you know data analytics, um social media targeting. There was a number of, of new campaign methodologies introduced in, in that campaign um yeah. that hadn't really it, it been impacted and then i think by a vote a uh, percentage of um 52 to 48 uh the the vote was to to leave the eu yep. um and so setting and then setting that aside the the clock started ticking basically there was a two-year clock to figure out how do we get out of this thing mm-hmm. um and negotiate an exit and and basically secede from the union. And that clock, that two year clock, ends in what, 19 days? Something like that? Uh yeah. Yeah. So my understanding right now is that and and everybody's freaked out. Like every everybody is freaked out on on all sides. But but one of the things that's sort of come out was that um It was an atypical election. Um, It was an extremely complex matter with extremely complex ramifications that weren't ever really fully developed or presented. Um, There was a lot of misstatements about the situation on both sides, but in fairness, hopefully more egregiously so on the pro-leave side, Um, you know, the NHS refunds, Turkey, et cetera.
1: I mean, for example. Um, the the government at the time, the conservative government at the time, said, if you vote to leave, we will have to have an immediate punishment budget. This was why it was dubbed. So uh, we would have to have this punishment budget immediately. There will be a recession immediately. Um, and none of those things happened or were really ever likely to happen. Right. So so I think there
0: was a bit of fudging on both sides. But the the reality is, is that. Um, yeah, it was it was bad and people weren't fully informed, and and now and now everybody's sort of dealing with this. And and right now the situation, the there had to be a negotiation. So if we leave, you know, will you will you let us keep these rights or those rights or these tariffs or that tariffs? Yeah. You know, um, can we have this border open, that border open? So there was it there was like a the concept of a deal where there was sort of a graceful exit, and then there's this idea of a just no deal, which is you just you shut you literally close the doors right and you're just you're back to 1973 or whatever where you're just your own separate completely distinct country again Mm. um so those those are the two main options right and i know there's a third option because complicating this already crazily complicated situation is is the the northern ireland border uh and because basically what would happen in the case of a hard what they call a hard Brexit, which or a no deal Brexit. Um, the Northern Irish border with Ireland, Ireland would remain or would remain EU and yeah. Northern Ireland would not be. And so the old, the old style, um, borders, checkpoints, et cetera, would, would go back into place again. Um, so there's sort of a side deal that's also being worked up, a backdoor deal, I guess to, to try and allow for that. So is that, I know it's crazily complex, but, um,
1: yeah. And then, and then the other it's, option it's, is, to, is to knock it all on the head and not bother and stay in the EU. I suppose that's, that's the other option. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's yeah. a, a, not, not a bad outline of, of the options. Um, I think the, what's referred to as this kind of no deal option, I think, I think in reality, it's not quite no deal, but I think it so, for example, there's a lot of talk about how airplanes wouldn't be able to fly because it's an EU agreement that keep, you know, for air traffic control and so on between Britain and France and so on. Um But I think some of those some of those fairly obvious things, the EU has come forward and said, well, well OK, we'll do a little side deal on this and a side deal on that. So actually, you can still travel and get your ferry across to France. But no, I think I think those are the options. Um and where we go is quite unclear. See, one of the problems, or well, the fundamental big issue, I think, is that you have, you had a, it's you, so going back to your point, you're correct that the the referendum election was quite different from a normal election where you have political parties. And it was different in a number of ways, but I think probably the number one way in which it was different is that the people running the campaigns for remain and for leave were not the people who would be implementing the the decision to remain or to leave. So normally, like in a in a in a normal political election, you vote for a party, and the people in the party that you then elect then carry out their program. But you had this odd situation where you had these issue campaigns. So the people who were campaigning to leave and the people campaigning to remain set up these sort of uh, temporary organizations that would that would campaign just on that issue. But then the assumption was always that it would be dissolved and that the people who would carry out the decision would be the government. And so I think that was part of what created the problem in the sense that the people arguing to leave, for example, were not. Well, in some cases, they, they were senior conservative politicians, but they were not. It wasn't the prime minister, for example, the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, was campaigning to remain. And so I think I think at the bottom of the problem is, firstly, that you weren't electing the people who ran the leave campaign who would then operate the leave, the actual process of leaving. And some of those people, frankly, made themselves quite scarce after the election and haven't been as involved as really I would have liked to have seen them. Uh, and secondly, you had a problem of a parliament which was predominantly... Populated by people and a government predominantly populated by people who had supported remain who were now in the situation of having to carry out a, a, a program that they had neither, that they had campaigned against and hadn't wanted and presumably thought was either impractical or just a bad idea. So that's that at, at the bottom, that's the problem because normally when you have a government in any country that's carrying out a policy, you have at least, you know, a large chunk of the people in that governing party that wanted it. And I think that's the unique and strange situation that we're in.
0: Yeah. So, um, for those of you who haven't seen it, there, there is an excellent, well, I thought it was good, uh, mm. uh, show called, um, there's, it's a two hour sort of movie called Brexit, um, starting, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. And I yeah. forget if it's on Showtime or Netflix, but it's, it's bouncing around, the, around there and it, and it goes into those. Uh, because th- this was the weird thing, the creation of these two quasi-political entities that argued or were r- responsible for running that campaign to either leave or remain. And I think we have, we have a, there's a baseline fundamental issue with politicians making promises that they don't keep down the road. But at least you can hold those politicians responsible in the next election, right? Here, I think you had a situation where these, these entities could make all the promises in the world or all the statements in the world, and they were not beholden to any of them.
1: Yeah. And we understood not to be. I mean, that was the curious, that was the curious situation of it. I mean, I have to say personally, I'm not a big fan of referendums in general for that reason. I much prefer representative democracy where you elect people and they make decisions. And then if you don't like what they've done, you vote them out and put somebody else in. Um, right. Uh, partly for this problem, but that's, that's partly, so, and, and if I, uh, and just to, just to, to be fair, a bit more fair and balanced, I think the people who uh, are most keen on remaining in the EU and who still are now very keen on abandoning the whole process and doing it, if, if they were on this show, they would be saying, well, the whole reason why it's not working is because the whole thing was a stupid and impossible thing to begin with. It was never possible. It was only this sort of mad fringe idea, which somehow became mainstream. Inexplicably people then voted for it, and now we're stuck trying to carry out this impossible thing. I mean, that's not what I believe. But is but that a large number of people who do believe that?
0: But so what part of that don't you believe? Cause that sounds know. pretty accurate to me.
1: Well, if it's true. Okay. If let's, so just as a thought experiment, let's imagine that it's true. What it would mean is that at some point, so all the way along in Britain's history. So as I say, it was 1974, I think, when we entered. The, uh, the EU. So we're talking about 45 years, something like that, uh, that we've been in. The argument has been throughout that there has been no actual loss of sovereignty, that Britain remains a, a sovereign and independent nation able to govern itself. And if we choose to, able to leave the European Union and coming back, to, you know, the bit I said at the beginning about how the European Union is, in my view, forming, attempting to form something like the United States of America, where Britain ends up in a position, something like New York State or California or something. The people who are who are, uh, I should say, uh, without generalizing, quite a lot of the people who are big fans of the European Union would reject that completely. And part of their argument in rejecting it would be that this is some sort of mad Brexiteer fantasy about how the EU is all controlling. And this is a sort of a conspiracy theory. And Britain does remain sovereign and and independent. And so the question that it then throws up, if it is genuinely not possible to leave, like forty years of what the European Union has been saying, and its and its its supporters within Britain have been saying, is therefore proven not to be true. It, it, you know, I, the are people part, right? are people are people really saying that Britain can't leave?
0: I don't think they're saying Britain can't leave. I just think they're saying, think they're saying it would be economically
1: uh, injudicious. Sure, that, to, well, that, that's too. Yeah, no, th- no, that is exactly what they're saying. But the point is, if it is so difficult to leave that it is for practical purposes not possible, then that's effectively the same as saying that you can't leave. You know, it's, if, um, well, or, or it just means to- you're getting such, you're getting such a good deal. Why
0: would you stop getting that good deal? That's the, I guess that's the other way of looking at it, right? If the benefits so, cause you're not, you're not necessarily saying you can't leave. You're just saying that the benefits of staying, grossly outweigh the negatives and and you can always say that if in any sort of deal or any sort of situation that deal is too good of a deal to pass up yes It, it just doesn't mean you you can't pass it up it just means it would be punitive if you did pass it up
1: yeah no that's true what i mean what you've just said is exactly the the sort of remain Campaign's view, I think. And so it's a pretty cool, mainstream. idiots, yeah.
0: right? They're idiots. They're Call them idiots. idiots.
1: No, they're, no, they're not idiots. I don't assume that people who disagree with me are idiots. Uh, but th- so what you've set out, I think is quite a fair, is quite a fair way of putting their point of view. I think that the difficulty arises and where this, cr- I don't think we're there yet, but it, this crunch point that's arriving. So, so the alternative would be to say, okay, Japan does pretty well. They're not in something like the European Union. You know, they're an island nation, a bit like Britain, similar kind of, uh, independent Minded outlook on the world. Um, if they can not be in the EU, then it should be possible for us not to be in the EU. And and I think somewhere in between those two, there's a lot of gray area, which we're currently exploring. And the question is exactly how damaging is it if we leave? And if it's, if it is so damaging that it's almost an act of national suicide, which is the kind of language that some people are using who think we shouldn't be leaving, then I would say that at some point in the last 45 years, we crossed a threshold where de facto we were stuck in even if legally in theory we could leave um and I, and I think that is quite an important important issue if that if that arises now i mean i do think that it is still possible to leave and part of the way that i think it's just my personal view that, that we should leave comes back to the point i made earlier about there's so there's the european union which is this kind of uh, you know, in, in my view, an attempt to create a sort of United States of Europe. And, you know, I mentioned the European Free Trade Association, which is more like NAFTA. So it's called EFTA. I mean, I think where we should be is there so that we would still get all the free trading, but we wouldn't be part of the political union for reasons hmm. that remain slightly mysterious to me. The government has not pursued that option. Well, I. So It's not, it's not that mysterious. Actually, during the, because it's the obvious compromise option, both leave and remain campaigns trashed EFTA as an option during the campaign, and it has never really recovered from that. It's been seen as a kind of, you know, kind of mutant hybrid that nobody wants ever since.
0: So, so, and, and you understand, like when you, when you chose Japan as your example, you understand that, that Japan is, is joining the TPP. Um, but you're saying that, that in terms of, um, Degrees of sovereignty that a trade agreement or, uh, a a group of countries collectively participating in a trade agreement is nowhere near as egregious, uh, as a, as a single state. So, so who's
1: in the TPP? Japan, United States, various other?
0: Well, not United States. Um, Japan, uh, Japan, China, uh, I want to say, um, uh the other who are the other folks? Singapore, Australia?
1: Oh, I've um, got them here actually. Uh so the twelve yeah. nations that negotiate Mexico. For, yeah. <laughs> oh I'm so, crying. So will Japanese people have free movement to and from Mexico? If the United States had stayed in it, would Japanese people be allowed to just move to America and Americans just allowed to move N- to Japan? No. Without yeah, so you see uh, it's a it's a much looser it's more about free trade and EFTA is more about free right. trade. And I think there's this issue. Well, there is. A, there's a complicated thing because actually there is a there is a free movement element of EFTA as well, partly because of the way that it does its free trade is is through uh, the European Union single market. But I just think so. My so my feeling on it is that the political strains that you're seeing, not just in America but in Europe and in and in other places, from these very large migrations of people, it really worries me where that's likely to go. And I think the people who are in favor of immigration, I think are too, too, too readily dismiss the people who are worried about it as just a bunch of kind of racist backwoodsmen. But from my point of view, as an elected politician, I'm elected not just to represent the people who I agree with and who voted for me, but all of the people. And if I have a whole load of people in my area who are incredibly unhappy about something, even if I think it's an irrational thing to be unhappy about, that is a problem that I have to think about. Um, and so from my point of view, this this rising level of movement of people and the rising political tensions that that creates, particularly the rise of the far right, the rise of kind of slightly crazy populists and the far left and all these various mad political groups in response to some of those those uh strains. You know, I I just feel that it's we're on an unsustainable path. So that's for me, that's the issue with with free movement, as I think particularly once you have a lot of one way traffic going in one direction, I think it becomes unsustainable and I think there'll have to be some kind of break on it. But that's not really my reason for wanting to leave. That's just that's that's an issue that would be there, whether we did or whether we didn't. For me, the issue is this question of ultimately who gets to decide what the laws are in the place that I live. And do I have the power to kick them out and put somebody else in And within the EU? You just don't have that.
0: Right. So, so let's um, let's talk about the political breakdown just a little bit. So, hmm. the the Remain tended to be sort of the right the right wing folks, the conservatives, and then the remain, sorry, remain with Labour.
1: No, and the I mean, left. no, it's th- this is this is why it's such a complicated issue is because it cuts across left and right. So, in general, e- no, I mean, there are, well, within the political parties, there are certainly far more people who want to Remain on the left. Most people on the left are uh, Remain, but there's a curious anomaly, which is that this part of the left in the 1970s, who were really against the EU because they saw it as a sort of neoliberal project, uh, includes the group of people who are now in charge of the Labour Party, which is the main centre-left party. So Jeremy Corbyn and all of his little gang running the Labour Party are part of that Eurosceptic left, which is very small but now quite powerful because they control the Labour Party. But most, you're right, most of the people on the left are uh, tend to be tend to lean. Let's not sort of be too specific. They tend to lean towards being in the EU and le- wanting to leave is more of a kind of right wing thing because it tends to okay. just some issues around sovereignty. Yeah. yeah, it's national nationalism okay. and sovereignty.
0: So, so March 29th. Yeah. Right. Is is the deadline? Right from um, Article Fifty, which y'all can Google or um, whatever. That whole book. Yeah. So so again, from an outsider's perspective, you guys have had two years to figure this out. Yeah. And you're you're scrambling around like a sophomore before the night of his final. Right. Um. It feels really like you've really. I don't. I, there's got to be a English phrase for screwed the pooch um dropped the ball um own goal it's not been very whatever. plain sailing has it it's it's nice it, it it feels like you've just uh scuppered the entire two years and done
1: nothing yeah it 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 does feel like that i think it's it's quite hard to tell from the outside what the government has been pursuing and i think part of it is i think it's a number of factors so so firstly was the fact that both Remain and Leave were coalitions of voters, some of which are not normally in the same faction. Um so in general, Leave was, it was actually more about a class and education divide and an age divide. Those were really the divide rather than left or right. So people who were older, people who were uh, less well educated, people who came from more like blue collar areas, blue collar employment were more for Leave, uh, and kind of educated younger, city-living people were more for Remain. Uh, and that kind of cuts across the two parties. But the problem was that different people were voting Leave and Remain for quite different reasons, with quite different political outlooks beyond that question. And so I think the, the question that it threw up is exactly what did Leave mean uh, and what did people who voted Leave want and what, therefore, should leaving the European Union look like And the problem that that created was that then immediately the whole political map splintered into various groups, none of whom was big enough to have a sort of controlling block. And so there were people who wanted people who voted to leave, you know, basically out of a pure, you know, Trumpian national populism kind of view that, you know, we don't want to be run by these foreigners. Let's get rid of them and let's be out of it. That was definitely part of it. There were also people who had this much more thoughtful, sovereignty based argument about democratic processes and so on that was part of it and generally those people were much less bothered about immigration much more bothered about the the political bit and then you have people who voted for remain but who actually res- want to respect the fact that we voted to leave and so they wanted they then became people who felt that we should leave because that's what we would voted for even though it's not what they wanted and so you have this really complicated coalition of people and that's reflected in parliament so ultimately remember the prime minister is not like a president so the, so, so the prime minister in the UK cannot just, uh, issue a decree and it happens. It, it, to, it has to go through parliament and parliament is incredibly divided into all of these factions. It's, it leans much more towards remain than the country at large, but that's because obviously it contains generally, uh, more educated, more city dwelling kind of people, um, than, than average. But the problem, the problem it creates is that there wasn't a majority for anything and i guess if the question is where do we go from here it's still not clear and the reason it's not clear is exactly this problem that that the government doesn't really have much of a majority to start with the conservative party doesn't have a majority in parliament and it and it it's able to pass its legislation only by having a deal with a kind of very small c conservative party from northern ireland called the dup uh the democratic unionist party they um and so when the government tries to put legislation in, put, put an act of parliament in to say, OK, this is our plan, this is what we're going to do, there is basically not a majority for anything. And this is how so much time has been wasted, because all of those factions were basically jostling to try and figure out how they could form a majority.
0: Why? It doesn't make sense to me, though, as yeah. to why the reasons matter. At the end uh-huh. of the day, you only have two groups. You have a remain group and you have a leave group. No, no, no. This and- is the whole
1: point. You, you you don't. Each of those groups is was a sort of temporary coalition of other groups who often aren't really that close to each other. So, that, so for example, right. you have. So, so for example, I would have been very happy to move into EFTA. So if you say, how would you, Neil, you're the prime minister instantly. How do you do Brexit? What I would do is move us very quickly two years ago into the European free trade association that would keep all of our economic ties, all of our free trading. That would all be great. We'd be out of the political union and we'd be, Definitely a sovereign nation once again, but still with very close econ- economic ties, trading ties. But we would still have free movement of people, and that's because for me the compromise is more on sovereignty and not uh, migration. I think migration will, will one way or another, be dealt with. But some of my fellow Leave voters would be apoplectic at that suggestion. For them, it was all about mm-hmm. immigration, and the fact that the solution that I've just proposed keeps not quite exactly as now, but to a large extent, it would keep free movement of people. Um, and therefore in their mind would fail to solve the problem that they had voted leave to solve means that they wouldn't support that kind of Brexit that I've just proposed. So what, so then you get this very hard leave. Let's leave. Let's make sure we pull down the shutters and so we can control our borders. But that then raises all of these questions about the economic damage that does because we, we reduce the or impair our trading relationship with our neighbors, which is why I'm less keen on that kind of approach. And so you see, it's not two groups. It's multiple different groups. Who want yeah, but the everything. reality is, yeah.
0: if you guys don't make up your mind, they just kick you out anyway. Well, right? time's maybe. up. You gotta go.
1: Well, that's the other question is what exactly did the EU want? Cause I think the EU have played that. I mean, I, I don't think the British government have pursued it the way that I would have, but I don't think the, I think the EU have been quite surprising as well. They've been surprisingly belligerent. Um, I think they could have had well, a, person.
0: sure you, you're, you're the girlfriend that dumped them. <laughs> they're going to, they're, like, what's your reaction? Your reaction is, get out of here. Well, Go. you think you you think you're better off without me? Good luck. Well, I mean, you're going to be dating some unemployed guy in a week. I guarantee yeah, it.
1: I mean, I suppose I just naively assumed that international diplomacy would operate at a more cerebral level than high school dating circles. Uh, so mm, I suppose yeah. I thought, you see, that we do have stuff that we. That is of interest to them, including a large number of people who buy lots of stuff from Europe. All those German cars, people here buy them as well. I actually drive a German car myself. Uh, and, you know. But you're I'm still sh- going to buy them. Well, uh, it, probably. But the point is the, if, if it becomes more difficult, then maybe I'll buy a, a Japanese car. I don't really care. I, I mean, I bought the German car because it, uh, it was the better car, but I have no re, I have no you know, loyalty to not buying a Japanese car or a British car or maybe even an American car. Um, Can you say that as a
0: politician? You, <laughs> I would have thought that all English politicians would drive Vahalls or
1: uh, Land Rovers. No, no, I drive. uh It's a Volkswagen group car that I drive. So, mm-hmm. um no, I, I, I just so this is the this, but this is the problem is that among the people. So among the people who voted to leave. Um, there were, there were different priorities. Some people, it was much more, I mean, the two things that drove it, one was sovereignty and two was immigration, but, but they were not equally important for everyone who voted leave. There were people who one was much more and the other much more. And, and, and that's, so, that's created a difficulty of how we go about it.
0: And I, I guess I get that now. I guess, yeah. I, I guess what I still don't understand is as of March 29th. Yeah. Like. Like, do the borders shut down? Do you start having to have your passport if you want to go into France? What is like? Is well, it is it happens- then purely up? Is it purely up to the EU as as to what they will and won't allow? And have they defined that?
1: Or- I think I think well, there's two parallel processes going on. I think one is what has I suppose become known as manage no deal, which is if in the scenario you've described. What do we do to mitigate, you know, what would otherwise be? See, It's it's not so much a case of the barriers coming down. It's the fact of. So this was the issue with the with uh, with flights. So there is a protocol for managing air traffic control across the across Europe, which is run, operated through the European Union because it made sense to do it that way. So if we leave the European Union, then we're no longer party to those protocols. And so does that mean that you can no longer fly from London to Berlin, say? Now that would be a strange thing to happen, but in theory it would. But what, what the EU has come forward and said is, okay, for these specific situations, uh, we will figure something out and we will, we will come up with a plan because it's fairly, it, you would think it wouldn't be that hard because it mostly involves continuing to do what we're doing. I think, uh, but so that's one track is this manage no deal. Um, but I think personally that is a dead end because although there isn't a majority in parliament for anything, Seems to me there's a pretty huge majority in parliament against that scenario. I think my view is that parliament, one way or another, will make sure that that does not happen. And I think. But what does uh, that mean? Does that mean a, 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 a quote unquote good deal or well, a decent so, deal? So this is, this is the, this is the conundrum. So what's the alternative? So one alternative is to vote for the deal that the government's negotiated, uh, which is currently still, still being finessed and renegotiated. Um, but, Ridiculous. but to a large extent that, Is, it's probably closer to what I would have, it's probably closer to EFTA. It feels to me like a more complicated version of EFTA, made more complicated by the fact that the government wants to get something in there stronger on immigration than I would have gone for myself personally. But but this is May's, this is May's deal, right?
0: Yeah. This is the deal that May
1: likes. Well well, it's hang on, it's become it's become called May's deal, but it is technically I mean, she's the Prime Minister, she's not just a random person who turned up off the street, so it is the government's deal that they have negotiated.
0: Yeah. But the reality is, hasn't she built up so much um antipathy that that people will vote against the deal just because it's her boondoggle at this point?
1: That they won't they won't well, won't. Well that's what they're saying, but the way it seems to me, there are three options at this point. Uh, and I don't consider another referendum as an option because that's a kind of decision-making process that would just ultimately lead back to one of the same three options. So option one is well, – Why, why of, not?
0: Why not? Let's let's talk about a second referendum. Well, well, okay, well, hang like, aside right. from
1: the – Well, hang on. We'll come back to okay. the a second. I'll set out what the three options are as I see it. So there's some kind right. of – so something that is along the lines of no deal, manage no deal or whatever, something that is along the lines that the government has negotiated, and something that is basically remaining, like packing the whole thing in and, and remaining, either permanently or maybe temporarily. Uh, so th- those are basically the only three roads forward. And so if you had another referendum, you would only be deciding between those three options. There is no other option that's going to magically appear. And so if the government and parliament can't decide between those three, it's not clear to me. It, it doesn't help the cause. It doesn't help. Ha- so in other words, I think no deal is off the table because I just think parliament will not vote for it. They will, they will do everything that they can to block it, including possibly killing the whole process. That's, if they can, that's my guess. And so that in effect leaves you an option between something like the government's deal, Theresa May's deal, and something like remaining in the European Union permanently or temporarily. And so I just don't think you're there's talking a way about the
0: that. deal the deal that they've had two years to work on yeah. and still don't have anything.
1: Well, they have a deal, but Parliament is not supporting it. But I think this comes back to the point of the clock running down and that what what's been going on for the last couple of years is that different factions within Parliament have been have been trying to figure out what can they get that is closest to what they really want, bearing in mind that no group is dominant, no group has control. It's it's almost like a game of political chicken in the sense of who is going to yield. So the people who want so there's a quite a large group who just want to kill the whole thing and just remain or go back to being in the European Union um doesn't and honestly Neil doesn't yeah. doesn't that seem to be the most
0: sensible thing and to just sit back and and sort of understand take take the lessons that were learned from this exercise and and if there remains this desire to extract from the EU to to apply those lessons going forward so like for one thing having um a deal or an understanding of a deal before a vote to leave is is generated um, like, it, would that really be the worst thing in the world if, if it was, the whole thing was just titanic and, you know,
1: we go back to our corners? I think the problem, you see that for me, the problem is that I think the combination of the change, particularly the way that the European Union has conducted the negotiations, to my mind, not, you know, not in good faith. Some friends of mine who voted remain feel now that they, they whether I don't know that they would necessarily vote leave, but I think they feel quite bitter about the way the European Union has proceeded. Um, because the, see the Remain case is built quite heavily on the idea that these are our friends across the water and we want to be with them and working with them. And I think that case is quite hard to hold up given how they've behaved in the last couple of years. And I take your point about how, you know, if you're the jilted lover, you don't really want to, you know, stay best friends necessarily. But the point is that does, does then make it very hard to say, oh, these are our friends. Let's cooperate with them. I think there's a huge amount of goodwill that's been lost. And I think the other problem. So, so I think that that becomes difficult. And I think it would lead to Britain. If, if Britain just stays in the EU, I think we would become quite uh even more of an annoyance within the European Union. So there's some stuff they need to do. They actually do, within the Eurozone, they have to do some stuff to integrate their economies more because of the strains that the euro currency is creating. And it's quite difficult for them to do that if Britain's in the room, constantly moaning and carping and saying, no, we don't like this extra integration. We want to remain freer. So I I honestly, this is part of the reason why I think it was quite short-sighted of them to be quite so obstructive, because I think it's actually in their interests. So, the analogy I use, Britain has been this sort of, Grumpy lodger in the European Union's, uh, spare bedroom. Uh, do you, did you use the word lodger? It's occurred to me. I don't think I've, you're like someone who pays you money to live in your house in a spare room. Uh, tenant. I guess uh, so. But, but lodger specifically means yeah. that they're kind of living with you as if like a family member would, but they're not really a family member. They're just a, a person who's renting a room in your house. Um, you know, lodging with you as a to – Renter. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know that we have a word for that.
0: Okay. We say, I mean, I've heard the word lodger. We we use the word lodger, but...
1: Fair I enough. I, I just thought, I'd, yeah. you know, two nations divided by a common language, as they say. Anyway, so I think we have been an, an unwelcome house guest, let's put it that way. But a, the point about a lodger is that a lodger pays you money, and maybe you need the money that they give you, but then they keep leaving the fridge door open, and they leave weird stuff in the cupboard, and, you know, all of this stuff that is annoying about living with other people. Uh And they come and go at strange hours and play their music loud, so I think there's been, in a weirdly analogous way, I think that's partly how Britain's relationship within the EU has been. I think we've been inside being an obstacle to the further integration that I think the rest of the EU wants to do, um, and ourselves feeling that we were carried along with this process, even though we've been dragging our feet more than we wanted. And I think where we need to be, which would be a happier place for everyone, would be a friendly neighbour rather than a grumpy lodger. And I think I thought that that would be quite clear to everybody involved, that they would be better off having us as a near neighbor still with good relations rather than this person who is within who doesn't want to be. And my worry is that if we do go remain in, since we're still in, that it becomes uh, it, it just every single debate within the European Union will just become a flashpoint because people will just keep saying, well, we didn't want it. We voted against it. You forced us back in. So I think within the EU, I think it would make Britain even more of an annoyance to them. And I think within British politics, it's hard to predict exactly what would happen, but I think it would probably not be good. I think the amount of anger and sense of betrayal that there would be would be huge. I mean, more people voted to leave the European Union than have ever voted for anything in British history. It's a lot of people voted to leave. Um, and throughout since then, there's been this kind of quite sneering and supercilious attitude from a lot of people. Um, you know, in the media and in politics that all these people voted for this and they didn't know what they were doing. And there's been very little attempt to really engage with like the argument that I put earlier about sovereignty um, or even the argument about immigration without just calling people racist. And I think all of that would remain unresolved. And I think on top of that lack of resolution, you would have a huge amount of anger. And I don't know where that anger would go because it's inherently quite unpredictable. Um, But I, I don't feel it would be good. OK, and I so, guess that, that's um, a long way. So that's a very long winded way of saying, I think the status quo ante of Britain being in the EU, slightly grumpy, but going along with it. I think that's probably gone permanently. That That's what I'm saying. I think I don't think we can quite go back to the way things were. It's like when you break
0: up, um then there's always the fear that you're going to break up again or whatever, that some action is going to cause another breakup. Once, once that first breakup happens, it's, it's, it's never quite the same as it ever was. To I, I begin. think that's, I think but,
1: that's right. And I think that's particularly true because of the way that the, the, the EU has pursued a very, I mean, you know, people would say rightly, but in any case has pursued a very hard line in the negotiations, which is fair. They're entitled to do that. But it does then completely undermine the argument that these are our friends and neighbors and we should be being friendly and neighborly with them. It does very much provoke you know, a tit-for-tat attitude, which is sort of what's happening.
0: And, and what about punting yet again and and putting in another six-month delay or anything like that? What's, what's the likelihood of that?
1: Well, I think there's quite likely to be at least some delay. And the reason why is because even once the deal is agreed and the document is signed, there's a lot of actual work that has to be done to implement it, and there's only two weeks left to do it. So I, I think there's likely to be at least some delay. Now, there is an interesting little – issue which is that in May there are the European parliamentary elections which currently Britain is not participating in we haven't selected candidates we haven't you know it's just not happening it's not on our radar this is a thing that's going on across the water in Europe it's not happening here at all so if we do remain in the EU there's an interesting question of how Britain's then represented in the Parliament and I suspect for a short while they could sort of finesse that or fudge it by just leaving the same people there who were elected previously I'm not I'm not sure you Europe're The European Union does tend to have quite a track record of fudging things if it needs to. So we could possibly do that for a while, but you couldn't do that for very long. So you would then have this strange problem. You know, if it went on for six months, a year, you would have this strange situation where if Britain is in the EU, but isn't represented in the parliament, hasn't had elections, hasn't even selected candidates. I don't know. I mean, it would it would it would increasingly start to become a mess is what I'm telling you.
0: So so let's do a quick fire sort of wrap up here. Go on. Um, So, question one: If if there were a second referendum with just the two choices, how would you vote?
1: The two choices of the government's deal or remain. Hmm. Or remain or leave? No. With with unspecified. Just remain or leave
0: again. Leave. Yeah.
1: Still. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, You are a, from what I understand, you are a political betting man. Uh So let's put some odds to the three options then. Um, so, so what, what are the odds do you think, or, or how would you rank the odds of, of the no deal, uh, deal and then, and then remain? I think. If you had to place bets.
1: Yeah, I think no deal. I would be, I'd be really amazed if that happens just because I think parliament has made it very clear that it will move heaven and earth to make sure that it doesn't happen. So it would take something quite extraordinary. Added to which, I don't think the government is very keen on it either. So with both parliament and government against, it's hard to see how it happens.
0: But uh, that's Rema- not fully Britain's choice, right? If, if whatever you put forward isn't agreed to by the EU, then, then you do have a no deal situation. There is
1: a, there is a deal on the table that the EU has offered us. So we could take that deal. Oh, okay. The, the, the ongoing okay. negotiation is within Britain that people here are not happy with elements of that deal. So, uh, okay. so that, so that, that, that's the negotiation that's still ongoing, but there is a deal on the table which we could take. Okay. So, so I think taking that deal that's on the table, possibly with some finessing. There's two parts to it. There's the withdrawal agreement and then there's the political declaration. And the withdrawal the withdrawal agreement effectively is a kind of a treaty. And then the political declaration is where all of the aspirational waffle is hidden. Or not hidden. It's there. Um but, and I think But that would be your moderated that would be your moderated deal. Yeah. Right. So I think okay. that's the most likely okay. scenario. Probably with a delay, but I think that's the most likely. And remaining in the EU long term, I really just can't see that happening. So it, f- it feels to me like one way, when you evaluate the options, one way or another, I think the government is going to get its deal over the line. But there's a small, you know, there's a small possibility that the whole thing does get killed off. There's a very small possibility that we could default into no deal, even though parliament and the government are against it. That is, so, so if you're right, if the clock runs down, that is what happens. But I think because both parliament and the government are against it, I can't see us ending up in that default option so if, I think.
0: So so let's do percentages out of a hundred. And we'll just for for ease of terminology, we'll just call them the EU deal. Yep. Um the Maze deal yep. and Remain. Yeah.
1: I would say some form of Remain, maybe fifteen percent at okay. best, maybe ten or fifteen percent. And I think the path to yeah. that is probably via another referendum. I don't think the government would do that, but there might be a referendum which could vote for it. Uh, no deal. I mean, that's very unlikely. Let's give it, I don't know, low single digits, one, 2%. And then all of the rest Oh, really? The whatever. EU deal. The EU deal is only one or 2%. No, 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 no deal. Sorry. No deal is time. Well, no
0: deal is taking. Well, I guess I is. To me, no deal means you take you take the deal that the EU is offering, right? No, no, Isn't that no, no, the worst no, case? No, no, no,
1: no deal is rejecting that deal and having no deal. That's the point. There is a deal on the table which the government has negotiated. The re- so, okay. say, well, so the reason you would say why would we not take that deal is because it involves us paying, for example, about 40-odd billion pounds to the European Union and accepting some ongoing constraints on what we do. So no deal is saying, okay, we've negotiated this deal, but we don't like it, what we've, we've ended up with. We're going to walk away. And that's when you then end up with this series of very small side deals on specific issues. So that's, that's okay. no deal. And I think that's, that's what happens automatically if, if the deal isn't right. agreed. But I think it's extremely unlikely that it will actually happen. I think what will happen is that one way or another, the government will get its deal over the line. So the EU has more or less agreed. So, so the deal that's on the table in Britain, the EU has basically said, okay, we've talked about this for two years. Here's what we can agree on over to you. And, and it's now in Britain where the argument is raging about whether we can or cannot accept the deal that our own government has negotiated, if that makes sense. So what's what's
0: sort of I, f- I still feel like <laughs> there's a disconnect between the EU deal and, and May's deal.
1: No, that, no um, that is the deal. So the deal is the deal that's been negotiated between the two of them. They're both happy with it. OK, happy in inverted commas. Uh, they have both agreed it. But. A they need
0: parliament of, to ratify
1: it. Yeah. And in fact, exactly. And lots of people in the conservative party are not happy with it. Uh, lots of people in parliament are not happy with it for different reasons. Some people who want to remain are not happy with it and people who want to leave, predominantly people who want to leave are not happy with it. But I just think as the clock runs down and the possibility, so there's quite a, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a persuasion campaign underway from the hardline Brexit people that no deal is not too bad. My, worry with it is that it is just a very high level of risk. See, the way I think about it is like crossing a street. So so, so what people who who are in favor of no deal will say is like, look, look at all these countries around the world that have no deal with the European Union. They don't have this deal with them and they're fine. And the analogy I think of is like crossing the street. So you can be on this side of the street and that's fine. And you can look across and you can see the people walking happily on the other side of the street and they're fine. But the process of getting from this side to that side does require a certain amount of caution. And you know, a, a managed process, you might say, rather than just going, "Oh, it's fine on the other side." Therefore, I'll just step out and walk across. It must be fine. Yeah. And I think that is the transition I, I period that. is where all the risk is. And I think the people arguing for No Deal, I think, are downplaying how much risk there is in in the transition. Which is why, but I, but I, I get I, that. But but honestly, from a position
0: of of, of bargaining, uh-huh. the EU has you guys over a barrel you've you've voted for something you're you're bound by it and the clock is ticking on you to make it work whereas if you did do a full a hard no deal you're you're resetting the the negotiating table and you're you're coming in from scratch if you want us to to play ball with you guys here's here's what it's going to take you're under no artificial yeah. timeline yeah. To, that, to make something happen.
1: Correct. That's, that in a nutshell is the argument for leave. Also, we get to keep about 40 billion pounds, which is quite nice. But yes, that, okay. in, in a nutshell, what you've just said is but, the argument for, for, for no deal. And the argument against it is what I said before, which is that it might be fine to be over there, but the actual process of getting thing to getting from here to there, I think, I think is more complicated. But if I, I've done
0: my math straight and yeah. I say maths plural because I'm speaking with an Englishman.
1: I oh, appreciate um, it. You're
0: worse. We're still looking at like an 85 to 88% chance that
1: some deal gets gets worked out. I, th- I think, yeah, and it's going to look more or less like the deal the government already has with some finessing. That's what I think will happen.
0: And legally, if nothing is signed by the 29th, do we
1: know legally what happens on the 30th? Yeah, we leave. And without a deal and what exactly that means, who knows? Nobody knows. Yeah, I mean I think as as I say this is that the answer to that question lies in the argument that we were just rehearsing just now between you saying well look we should just get out and then we're in a stronger position to renegotiate versus my point which is that that actual process of leaving uh introduces a great deal of risk which if it goes badly wrong uh always rebounds on the government. So Okay. All right. So I think, I think we're, we're, we're wrapping,
0: we're wrapping up here. What, what, um, indicators or what statements or what activities should we be looking for over here? Um, to, to kind of give us a hint as to which, which way the wind is going to blow on this. Is there like if, are we looking for something from May saying a, 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 is that what we're really waiting on parliament to
1: have a vote? Partly, I mean, I think that there are a series of important votes that are going to happen this week. So how they go will be interesting. To some extent, I think it's not what May says that is actually the critical factor, because she's been saying more or less the same thing for about forever. I think the critical point is, is when you notice some of those other factions within the government or within parliament who are currently either skeptical or against her deal moving towards it. And I guess the two or the one in particular, whether well, there are two groups, I think, to look for. One is the kind of the more hardline Brexit group within the Conservative Party, who are usually known as the European Research Group, the ERG, uh, tend to be led by people like uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, if they start to make noises that say, OK, we're going to vote for this deal, that helps because that's a big chunk of the Conservative Parliamentary Party to get on side. The other group, but that's in itself not quite enough because, remember, the government doesn't have a majority in, in Parliament. So you kind of need some of the DUP to come on side. That's the, the Northern Irish Party that is sort of in a kind of very loose coalition with the government. Or, and this would be re- this would be really critical, is if you start to see large numbers of people in the Labour Party, uh, which is the main opposition party, coming on board with Theresa May's deal. And the Labour Party has had a policy of sort of studious ambiguity for some time on Brexit, essentially because the party as a whole is very pro-Remain, but the leadership is pretty pro-Brexit, and the leadership has been trying to keep itself in its position by not alienating its, uh, its membership. So, so if- So it, what's the
0: first, what is the first vote, or what day is the first vote that we should pay attention to?
1: Oh, you put me on the spot now, I'm not sure. There'll be, uh, beginning of the week, parliamentary votes are always Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. But off the top of my head, I can't remember what votes are when. In any case, there's always a chance of them being delayed because they're so critical that if if obviously there's a great deal of behind the scenes wrangling going on to see who is likely to vote for what. But I think a week from now, we will have a clearer idea. But the thing to look for, as I say, it's it's the Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party starting to come on board and it's the Labour Party coming on board and if if particularly if both of those happen, then I think the prime Minister is is often away, and her deal will go through. If you just get just one or the other, um it could still be quite dicey. But I think what will concentrate minds is the fact that if they don't agree something, then it is this no deal scenario that we're looking at and And I think partly what's what's been the Prime Minister's strategy is basically to just keep pointing to that and say, well, if you don't vote for what I'm offering, this is what the alternative looks like." And that, and right. that's why, that's why merely looking at what she's saying doesn't help because that's more or less what she's been saying for quite some time. The question is whether people start to rally to that argument, and that's what I, I literally have no idea whether that will happen or not. And I think one way or another, there's likely to be at least some delay. I think.
0: All right. That's the. Depre- it's all very depressing. It's highly uncertain, honest, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, it, it,
1: yeah, the, pro- the the problem it creates as as well is that it is the opportunity cost of the fact that the government is spending so much time on this and therefore isn't spending time on transport or housing or, you know, economic regeneration and all the other things that governments often do. Um, You know, from the point of view of someone who's a conservative party politician wanting a conservative government to do well. You know, that's the other issue that I have is wanting to make sure that those other issues are not being forgotten. And I think there's so much government time going onto this at the moment that it's very difficult for anything else to happen. And so part of the reason part of the benefit I think of getting this thing put to bed is that it would then allow the government to start to think about those things, which ultimately are supposed to be what governments do for the benefit of the people who elect them. That's a good note <laughs> to wrap up on.
0: Um, I do think though that you should say friendly neighbor versus grumpy lodger and put it on a bus buses seem very popular there (laughs) it seems to be your most effective form of advertising so neil um i would love to say you've made this all crystal clear uh i don't think it's possible but uh you certainly helped i've Um,
1: clarified the lack of clarity about that i've pointed out where they they you've
0: you've removed the dust to reveal an opaque window um (laughs) So I, I do greatly appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. Um, and, uh, perhaps we'll have a chat, uh, sometime after March 29th, if you're still allowed to speak English <laughs> or whatever the laws are. I, 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 um, I'm
1: sure, I'm sure we'll be fine. Maybe, maybe the, uh, the internet lines to the US will be down. I'll have to, I'll we'll have to put some string across right. them. I'll speak with a bean can chant it would probably be a better connection
0: <laughs> all right neil thank you very much okay. and uh best wishes See all right, yeah. cheers hey i hope you enjoyed that uh attempt at demystifying what is going on with brexit um the brexit movie i mentioned with benedict cumberbatch uh is called brexit the uncivil war uh, which is available in the states here on hbo and i think i think uh you know Neil had a pretty good point in terms of you know purse strings and centralized uh, administration sort of eventually slowly winding its way into complete authority and again using the u s as a um, sort of example or a simile you know we we have California laws or we have state laws, but the reality is if we try to go around federal laws, for instance, um, setting the speed limit higher than, you know, 75 or whatever it is, um, we're immediately threatened with a loss of federal funding. And for California, that's not, you know, a significantly huge issue. We, we put in more into the Fed than we take. But the reality is still we want the federal dollars. We want that money. Um, life would be much more difficult without that money uh and i think i think eventually you know we we always bow to to what the federal um departments want and and i could see that happening over time over a long amount of time with the eu and and the other point that neil made is it it never really goes backwards right and only goes forward uh to to relinquishing more control and and giving up more autonomy, it, it you never really seem to get that back until there's uh, a a really extreme event. So that's um, that's my take. I still do not think I would have vote, voted leave uh, if it were me. I would have uh, voted remain and and try and address those issues in in some other manner other than uh, just. You know, kicking the ball away. Uh, so to bring you up in, to date in the news, um, as Neil mentioned, there was a a vote um, today, uh, less than an hour ago, um, for Parliament to vote on the deal that may worked out with the EU, um, and they resoundly voted that down. So we are. Essentially, still at square zero. Uh, it, it is as if absolutely nothing has happened. And I got to catch some of the debate in Parliament today, and it doesn't look like they are anywhere close uh, to to being able to come together uh, and and resolve this. Neil feels pretty optimistic that um, the weight and the pressure of you know hard Brexit. Um, the 29th is coming and being kicked on the bums um, will will get people to start working together. Uh, he is infinitely more optimistic about the human condition, I think, than I am. So uh, as of now, there is no deal. Uh, the, the deal negotiated has been rejected completely uh, in a significant number. Um, May, you know, who knows what May is going to do at this point. Um, We are now 17 calendar days from uh, the United Kingdom uh, leaving the EU. And as Neil said, you know, what happens on the 30th, nobody really knows. You know, you can say out loud that the UK will be a separate and distinct country. Okay, but what what does that mean? What does that mean for the EU nationals who live in the UK currently, will they have to be kicked out? Will they have to go through a visa process? Um, You know, what happens to the planes and trains and boats that are on their schedule? Um, You know, what happens when I go through the channel, Um, you know, and there's no, absolutely no real passport uh, checkpoint for, for, you know, EU citizens. Um, does that mean that all the English have to queue up in the the foreigner aisle? And then, you know, would the computer systems in France even allow, you know, for for country of residency as a foreign country um, for England or the UK? It the, the the ramifications, you know, they're talking about Gibraltar, they're talking about Ireland, Northern Ireland. The the ramifications of this are just massive, massive. Um, and, and, you know, to, to feel like there's really not been any real substantive movement along getting an agreement hammered out um, is, is worrying about the state of politics. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's I, I, I don't know. Um, when you have a national situation like this and, and you can't figure it out, and and you just default to no action uh it it makes me worry about what america would do if we were presented uh a similar situation uh an actor else moment where people disagreed on the details of the action so anyway i hope you enjoyed it i hope uh it was informative and uh revealed some things uh to think about that i know it certainly did for me Um, So again, I hope you enjoyed it and we will talk to you soon. Thanks.